Hello and welcome to Five Alive. It is another beautiful day to be serving the Lord. Today we are going to be taking a look in the book of John at the 18th chapter. We are going to look at Jesus being put on trial today. But before we do that, I want to ask a few questions. See if we can get our mind engaged into what is about to happen here in this passage of scripture. First of all, at what age do you stop building physical muscles if you work them out? That's a great question. I don't know. There's not a specific age where you can stop building muscle. You can always build muscle mass or add to your muscle if you eat properly. If you're 90 years old, do you think you can still build muscle? Yes. Sure. Yes. You think so? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had no idea, and I had actually never thought about it until I was working out in the gym in the U.S. a few years ago, and there were the silver sneakers. Silver sneakers are people over the age of 65 that um, get special assistance in order to pay their gym membership so that that way they can work out. The main reason they work out is because they need to maintain their balance. I mean, you get over 65, you start losing your balance. Nobody wants their grandma to fall down because she was getting up from her chair and walking to the refrigerator, right? People will go to the gym in order to work their muscles out so that that way they will continue to maintain their balance so that that way they will continue to maintain good health. And so that that way, little accidents around the house, the number one way for people to get injured will be less probable to happen. I remember talking to a gentleman and looking at him and saying, how are you doing today? And he said, I'm doing great. He goes, but you know what? I just discovered that I need to change my workout routine. And I said, why is that? And he said, because I am 90 years old and I have been building muscle still and it hurts in order to continue to build these muscles. He's like, at this age, I just want to maintain my balance and a positive and happy lifestyle. And I thought about that and I thought, well, that's really interesting that a 90-year-old man can still be building biceps and a chest and the muscles in his back and the muscles in his legs. I thought that was pretty interesting because so often we look at ourselves as we age as a total deterioration process, right? And why is that, that we look at it that way? Because we don't work out our muscles. When we're young, we believe, oh, when you're young, you have all this energy and you can do whatever when you're young. And then whenever you're older, you don't, you, you have other things to do. You can't have as much fun. You can't work out and all that other stuff because you have to focus on this stuff and all that other stuff isn't important. And so we've built a lifestyle and then society has said, well, you just can't build muscle whenever you're old because you're old and feeble and you can't do anything. Mm, yeah. The reason I bring up this situation of muscles and being able to still work them out is because there's often times that people get involved in a relationship with Jesus Christ. They become a Christian and all of a sudden they start reaching an atrophying relationship with him where they no longer continue to exercise their faith, exercise their belief, exercise their trust. And they think that uh, it's because I'm older. I've been doing this for so long. I already know everything there is to know, and I can't learn anything new. If our physical bodies can continue to grow muscles into our older ages, there's a correlation there, I believe, between our physical muscles and our spiritual muscles as well, our spiritual faith, our spiritual trust. So is there a limit to how deep we can get with God? No. 
Is there a limit to how strong our faith can be? No. Is our spiritual maturity only at its peak when we're young and vibrant and looking our best? No. So why is that what we project in today's society? I don't know. I was pondering that this morning. Oh, really? I was. I, I don't know why. There was a new uh, Toby Mac song out. It's a great song. I look at Toby Mac. He's in his 50s. And there's so much more in him. Yeah. That he's not done yet. Because number one, God's not finished with him yet. But he has so much in him to write about, to sing about, to share about, and to instill in his family and in his children life isn't done. Life doesn't stop at a certain age. I think of Tom Brady in the Super Bowl, right. 43 years old and still going. Why do we as man go, nope, sorry, you can't do that. Nope, you've aged out. No, you're too old to sing. No, nobody's interested in you. All we need is the young and the pretty because it's always been like that. You always have the younger, the younger actors, the younger actresses that start, you know, from age 18 till 28 and then and then what? Well, then they have to make the life choice. Am I going to continue to do this on as a career? Am I going to start a family or am I going to do something new in life? Yeah. Well, and then look at all the things that we do in order to make ourselves continue to maintain a youthful appearance. Well, then we put on makeup. We have plastic surgeries done. We have enhancements given to ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Because we think that this is what life is about. Is that what life is really about? No. Like, I mean, if it is, that seems kind of empty to me personally. I'm sorry, but it, it just does. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's okay to look good. No, no, no. I'm not saying it doesn't. It's not okay to look good. But people have been trying to but stay young I don't, for centuries. But I don't do my best at looking good because I don't exercise like I should. Like, I don't go in and like, man, I'm going to rip my body and be a size zero. Like, I don't do that. But I maintain my weight and... Right, but I think there's a I think there is a good thing with aging gracefully, physically, but I think spiritually there's so much that our elders have to teach us about their relationship with God, and I just wish, I hope with all my heart that the older people that I continue to come in contact with, of course, as I'm getting older, I'm becoming one of those people, but I just I don't ever want to limit God. And my relationship with him, I, if God gives me the ability to live between 90 and 120 years of age, as Blair and I always talk about, we want to live to be 120. If I am able to live between 90 and 120 years of age, I want to be more in love with Jesus than I am at 43. Right. I don't want to become stagnant. Exactly. I don't want to all of a sudden put on all of this extra fluff. Fluff isn't muscle. It isn't the ability to do more. It isn't the ability to maintain a good uh, posture. And the more fluff I put on physically, what if I'm also putting that on spiritually? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, my relationship with Christ becomes just all about this nonsense fluff and not about who he really is. Mm -hmm. It's easy. It's easy to do. I mean, it's easy to become content mm. in uh, in your situation of life. Well, you know, this generation is for the younger. And so I guess I've learned everything and they don't want to have anything to do with me. And I don't want to be a bother. Right. So I'll just go out and golf, <laughs> <or> <laughs> pick up a hobby and, and just 
live life that way. So sometimes we can live, live totally separate outside of those that are young. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I can call him out or not, but Major General Prince Sundu, who is a friend of mine, uh, I've gotten to sit down with him a couple of times over the past several months and talk with him. And he's been retired for many years. He's in his 70s. And he has a vast knowledge as being a major general and also being a prince of Punjab. He has this vast knowledge of the place that we live. And to sit down and to just talk with him, I don't, I don't like to give information about myself because I can glean so much from him because he has such knowledge. And I'm just thankful that he's willing to talk with me and tell me things. And I, I just implore anybody as we're getting older to continue to do that because we don't age out of learning, but we also don't age out of this opportunity to continue to grow in knowledge and teach others as a result. And I think that's very important for us. And I think this passage of scripture that we're going to read today is one that we can easily overlook and just say, okay, Jesus went on trial. He was wrongfully accused. And then that's the end. And then we just go immediately to the cross and we immediately just start from there of how important his redemption is. And when we look at Jesus being wrongfully accused, what if we're wrongfully accusing ourselves of aging out? It's very easy to do. Because it is so easy to do. Because your body has ailments and you feel those ailments each and every day. You feel, oh man, my leg is cramping. Where in the world did that come from? <laughs> or hold up. What did I do yesterday? Yeah, or you're slowly, like you knew you could bend all the way down to the floor at one time in your life. And so then you go to bend down all the way down to the ground to the floor. And then it's like, I don't think I can get back up <laughs> and your knees become stiff and it's like, Oh, I need to, I need to do something about that. Yeah. Yeah. Or not. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if you don't do anything about it, then obviously you're not growing. There was a news related article that came out this week of a lady who was 88 years old. This was on CNN. She was 88 years old and she does physical, she trains girls in their teens, 20s, and 30s to do physical fitness. She's 88 years old. And if you look at her, you'd be like, there's no way that lady is 88 years old, first of all. Second of all, she, you know, when she started exercising, she'd never exercised in her life until she was 50 years old. Oh, that gives me inspiration. I mean, that's that, that just goes to show in several different areas. Physically, we're never too old to start getting in shape. But spiritually, there's no limit to coming to Christ that we can say, oh, I aged out and now I can no longer be a Christian. Right. Now I can no longer follow Jesus. Right. You see what I'm saying here? These parallels are very important for us to recognize that, yes, we have a physical body and there are limitations that are there. And we do have a spiritual body and we have limitations there. However, physically, our limitations are usually set before us by things like age accidents that we've had, concussions that we've had, maybe health problems yeah, that setbacks. we've been plagued with, setbacks. But spiritually, the limitations are set by ourselves. Mm -hmm. God doesn't set a limitation for you, Aisha, and say, okay, you can't come any closer to me. He doesn't say to you, Xavier, okay, Xavier, you're 16 years old and that's the end, buddy. Like, this is how much knowledge I'm gonna give you and you're gonna have to keep this the rest of your life. 
but we set those limits mm-hmm. on God. And we say, okay, I can't, I can't go any further. Mm-hmm. Or we say, you know what? I'm more interested in all of these other things than I am in developing a relationship with God. And why not? What does this world have to offer us that can distract us from loving Jesus? A lot. Okay, so let's name a few things. I wrote down a, a list here, and I want you to start. And I'm going to check off what I've done, and then you keep going. Pinterest. Pinterest. Okay. So social media. I didn't have that. They offer us money, uh-huh. power, mm-hmm. the ability to do things that we never thought we could do, even though we have the ability to do it. Okay. I called that innovation. Yes. That's what it is. Okay. If I help somebody, then my name will be elevated. Oh, popularity. Technology. Technology. Food sometimes. Food. Sure. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Your looks. Is it okay if I call these things comfort? Looks and food? Do you eat food you don't like? No. Yes. Yes, yes I do. Yes. Sometimes. But do you yeah. continue to eat it? Do you yeah. just like, oh man, I want some more of that nasty no, food? No. no. You eat food that you like, right? Yeah. What about putting on makeup? Do you do that in order to feel comfortable? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that way I don't scare people. Come on. You're not going to scare nobody. <laughs> what else? There's a lot of days I don't wear makeup. <laughs> <laughs> I also wrote down not being embarrassed. Like, people hate to be embarrassed. That is true. And that can be a distraction from God, can't it? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What else? Knowledge. They try and offer us a knowledge that way that we, that way they can manipulate us to not believing in a God. Okay. Right. Yeah. They want us to worship the man and or woman. And And therefore we become distracted because our focus is on them. Like we can become so self-consumed with them that we want to follow their every way and every move and pattern our lifestyle after them. Mm, Definitely. Sleeping movie, like sure. a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our work, we can get so ah. consumed in what we do. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, so I'm going to read some things that I was thinking of that this world has that's out there, specifically right now as a distraction. The pandemic is a huge distraction for people, right? Mm-hmm. Either you're fearful, and so therefore you never leave your house, and if you do leave your house, you're fearful while you're out, or you're one of those people that makes fun of everybody that's fearful. Like there's only, there seems to only really be those two extremes. There doesn't seem to be any common ground. That's just like, okay, there's a pandemic out there and I'm going to do my part to, you know, protect myself, protect those that I love. And I'm not going to talk down about the people that think differently than I, everybody has an opinion on it basically. So the pandemic war, uh, there's different wars going on right now. Miramar is having a war. There's a couple of other conflicts going on, Azerbaijan, Armenia. Uh, There's some conflicts going on in Africa. So those are things that are distracting for people. Uh, There is the natural disaster stuff. Uh, There was a couple of weeks ago we were sitting here in the house and uh, there was an earthquake that hit most likely in Tajikistan, but possibly in Amritsar. Depends on the news feeds that you read. But anyways, we could see... Uh, or we felt the effects and could see the earthquake. And I mean, people are affected by natural disasters, tsunamis and uh, hurricanes, uh, these kinds of things, uh, floods. These, these things are distractions from, from God. 
what is justice and or giving aid to people? A lot of people use these as distractions because uh, if God was really God, then he wouldn't need me to do these things. And so therefore I am really more of a God than, than the God of this earth. There's sex uh, reproduction. Like obviously God created sex for a reason. It is for us to populate the earth. It is for a man and a woman to enjoy each other's company and to continue to remind themselves that they are united as one body. And that is the godly way of looking at it. And yes, we, as married people, we need to, when we're married, not before, if we're single, then not. But when we're married, that yes, we have to have sex, or not have to, but we need to have sex because it really unites us as a husband and a wife. And so taking it out of that context, it becomes perverted and is a total distraction that the world offers us separate from who God is. Protection. We want to feel protected. Like if we feel that there's a danger out there, we want some hope that we aren't going to face that danger again, or that danger will go away, or... I mean, we, we really desire to be protected. There's laws, laws are put in place, and we can get distracted by the laws. And the laws can be so important to us that we take our eyes off of God and we start looking down at people that disagree with this, whatever side of the law we fall on, and we look at them as if they're our enemy. And the whole time God says that we're supposed to love one another, and yet laws distract us from fulfilling the law of Christ. Pain sometimes, and I mean, people have been getting a lot of tattoos lately. They've been going out. When you got a tattoo, how did it feel? Painful, <laughs> Painful right? And yet there are people that don't just get one tattoo, but they get multiple. Sometimes they get them all over their body. And so sometimes that pain is a distraction from God because the pain actually becomes a point where some people feel good with the pain and they want to experience the pain so that that way it makes them feel alive. And then lastly, I have a place to call home. We want a place to call home and we want to make it our fortress. And sometimes that means excluding God because his regulations of the way he created this world or a conflict with what we would consider or classify as a safe home. And so therefore we keep God out of our home. Mm -hmm. I think another one might also be self. Huh? We're so self-consumed with what we need and what we want and all the other stuff that we distract from helping, uh, from worshiping God. Yeah. Because we want to work our lives out and we want it this way and this way and this way. And if anybody says any differently, then they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And we can get so self-consumed and not have put in the time to worship God. Definitely. So all of these things being said, somehow and in some way, Jesus, this is what gets often preached from the pulpit and by men and women of God, is that he's supposed to be, bring some kind of balance to our lives. And yet I want to say that Jesus doesn't bring balance to our lives because Jesus brings more than balance to our lives. Jesus completes us. God created us in a way that when Jesus is inside of us and in our hearts and when we're worshiping him as our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our King, we are completed in those moments. He completes us. 
I don't understand how he does that. Like, I've studied theology for years. I've read the Bible through definitely more than once. And I still don't get how he does it, how he plans it all out, how he executes the things that are coming in the future. I, I don't... I don't grasp it in my mind. I just know that he does. And I know that what he reveals, and I believe he reveals himself through a scripture text called the Holy Bible. And yes, that means I have faith in the Bible, that the Bible is his revelation of truth. And so today when we're reading through John chapter 18, verses 19 through 24, there are three things that I want us to look at. Number one, Jesus provides revelation in public. He does not do anything in secret. There's no secret code or mystical code that Jesus is giving out there that every capital letter that's written in the Bible, if you put it all together, then it's going to lead you to understand God. That's not the way Jesus works. There's no secret club out there that if you go to church, all of a sudden you'll get invited into a secret club that you will have a new revelation of who Jesus is. That's not the way Jesus works. He provides all of his revelation in public and not in secret. Secondly, violence is the result of misinterpretations, misunderstandings, and or change, which in Christ was a fulfillment of knowledge. And so as a result of Jesus fulfilling what the scriptures said, violence takes place. And third, Jesus's kingdom is not of this world. He knows what he created and why he created it, and I can trust him in that. So Xavier, if you'll read for us John chapter 18, verses 19 through 24, we're going to look at Jesus being wrongfully accused. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Brilliant. And then if you'll read, I didn't give you this, but I want you to read 33 through 36. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. This is the reading of God's word, John chapter 18, 19 through 24 and 34 through 36. So leading up to this, this is all transpiring in one evening. Jesus and his disciples had a meal together. Maybe you've heard this term before, the Last Supper. That is what we're talking about. They then retired to the garden where Jesus prayed. 
and the disciples slept. Judas then came and betrayed Jesus, and Jesus was arrested. The disciples, as cowards, scattered. Peter then that evening denied even knowing Jesus three times, as was prophesied by Jesus. And then Jesus appears before the temple priest, or the high priest, and then the Roman or occupying authority, who is Pilate. And as he appears in front of the temple authority, there's police officers there. Have you ever been to a temple that there's police officers that are in charge of the temple? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're, they're there to protect, but they're also there to arrest people that are doing things against the law of God. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where Jesus appears. He appears there in front of them, in front of the high priest, and they accuse him. They start accusing him and his disciples of wrongful teaching, of wrongful things. And what is Jesus's response? What have I done wrong? You already know what I've said. I've said it all in public. If you need to know what I said, then ask everybody else. Ask people what I've said. Ask them. I taught openly. Nothing's been kept in secret. Uh, So I'm just curious. Have you ever been accused of doing something that you you didn't do? Yes. Okay. And were you vindicated or were you prosecuted for this action that you never did, but yet you were accused of? Did people then continue to uh, berate you and talk bad about you? And and It's happened both ways. It's happened both ways? Mm -hmm. For you also? Mm -hmm. So I can think of a time that I was wrongfully accused of something that I mishandled the wrong way. I was young. I was in fourth grade. I was younger than Mallory at this time. And the teacher accused me of being disruptive in class. So the uh, thing that the teacher did was write my name on the board. If you do something wrong, they write your name on the board. And then somebody did something else. Not me, but somebody else did. And so then she went back to the board and she said, Matt, actually, my name was Kane. I went by my middle name then, Kane. And she said, I told you to stop disrupting class. And she put a check mark next to it, which means that I'm in more trouble than I was before. If you get two check marks, you're going to go to the principal's office. I haven't done anything wrong, but I don't say anything. So then she continues teaching. And there's another disruption. She said, Kane, I told you to stop. And so she goes and she puts a second check mark. Now I know I'm going to the principal's office, but I've not done anything. She's wrongfully accused me of doing something. And that day I made a determination in my mind as a young nine-year-old boy, if I'm going to get accused of doing things wrong, I better do them. So I'm going to do bad things because I'm not going to get in trouble for other people. I want to get, if I'm going to get in trouble, I want to get in trouble for the things that I do that are wrong. In the next couple of years, I lived, I know this sounds really funny, but I lived as a rapscallion, you know, a little miscreant kid that would disrupt class. And I was always making jokes, and I became the class clown, and I was very disruptive all the way up until almost ninth class. As a result, I got myself in trouble all the time. I was always going to the principal's office. I was going into what they called in-school suspension. I was I was in trouble. I was just a troublemaker. I was in detention. I had to you know do chores around the school all of these things, because I had made a determination in my mind that if I'm going to get wrongfully accused of something, I better do it. But then I became convicted of that. 
And as I got a little bit older and I found Jesus, I realized that doesn't make any sense. And Jesus was wrongfully accused. And when I asked him to be my Lord and Savior, I said, you know what? Jesus was wrongfully accused of things and he kept his mouth shut. And so therefore, maybe that's what I need to do. Maybe I need to be more like Jesus. And if I'm wrongfully accused, I need to just allow God to be the one who is the judge. Now, have I executed that perfectly ever since I made that decision for Christ? Absolutely not. Blair's sitting here shaking her head. No. <laughs> but it is my desire to allow God to bring the judgment and not me act as judge and jury. Isaiah chapter 40, I have written down verses 9 through 31, but I just want Blair to read this for us. And I think we can stop around uh, verse 15. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flocks like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. This poem that Isaiah writes about the goodness of God brings us to a point where we have to ask ourselves the question, who did God consult about how big he would make the universe? Who of us did he consult whenever he was putting the oceans on the earth? Did he consult you, Xavier? No. He didn't consult me either. So what makes me think that I can tell him what to do? <laughs> what makes me think that I can accuse him of things that I know nothing about? What makes me think that I can say, you know what? Things have gone so badly in my life, so therefore I'm just going to become an atheist because obviously there's no such thing as God because I've had some hardships in my life. Really? Did God consult me about any of the things that he did whenever he created this earth? Did he consult me about where a typhoon should hit or where a tsunami should hit so that that way I would be able to uh, better handle it whenever it occurred? No, he didn't consult me about any of these things. And are these things, these disasters, as we like to call them, are they so horribly bad that they disprove God all of a sudden? Or is it possible through pain, through suffering, through being broken down, that we can actually get closer to God, which is what he wants in the first place? We watched a movie yesterday, Xavier and I, called The Million Dollar Baby. And in it, the narrator, Morgan Freeman, says this line about, in order to train a boxer, you have to strip them down to the point where they forget everything that they know, and then you have to rebuild them and train them the way that they're supposed to actually be a good fighter. And I thought whenever I heard that, I was thinking about preparing for today and, and, and being ready to, to present this podcast. And I was like, 
That's a good analogy of what sometimes God does for us. Sometimes he allows the bad things that happen in our lives to strip us down so that that way we can be children of God, so that that way we can be more like him, so that that way we can be humbled and recognize how great he is and how the work that he's done for us is so beautiful. So first of all, Jesus doesn't say anything in secret. He provides all the information we need to know publicly. Have you ever heard somebody say, it's not fair in Christianity that you say Jesus is the only way? It's not fair that you say that. I think many pathways should lead to God. Have you ever heard people say that? Mm -hmm. And yet the funny thing is, is that when we proclaim Jesus is the only way, we're giving an invitation for you to join with us. And it's the person who's opposed to following Jesus that's limiting themselves from actually being invited into the public club of who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. The very open and public venue that says, I desire all man, all creation, all of the world, the universe to follow me. That's what Jesus says. Mm -hmm. I want everything to recognize me as the creator that I am. And when we say, no, I reject that, it's not God that's now rejecting us. It's us who are rejecting him. Mm -hmm. And then we want to blame him to say, oh man, he's such a, those Christians, they're so one track minded but yet aren't we the ones that are one-track minded when we choose to reject Christ? Because what we really want is we want to do our own thing and in our own way. And so that takes me to number two, which is violence already starts. Jesus has been arrested. There's violence, number one. Violence, number two, he speaks the truth in front of the high priest. And as a result of the truth that he speaks, a guard just strikes him. Did he say something wrong? Did he sin? Did Jesus sin? No, he was just there. He had an available cheek. He had an available cheek. And did Jesus then punch the guard? No. Did he then say, forget this, I'm done with all of you people? No. No, no Jesus didn't say anything out of order, and yet he was wrongfully accused and was struck. Violence started because of a misunderstanding, because of new knowledge being gained, and it was something that was distracting for the guard. And yet the guard has probably heard Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 8, read in the temple before. Right, but you have those people that are always like, oh, there's got to be a hidden agenda. There's got to be a hidden agenda. Uh So it makes me wonder, you know, did they they talk like that? That's possible. I mean, mean, we talk like that today, don't we? Right, yeah. So Isaiah 53, 3 through 8. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? So Isaiah 53, 
is a prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus comes, and Jesus fulfills this prophecy 100%. In his book, Making Sense of God, in chapter 4, Timothy Keller talks about it this way. He says, outside of salt and a couple of minerals, everything we eat has died so that we might live. If you're eating bread, not only did the grain die, but the bread has to be broken into pieces. If the bread stays whole, you starve and you fall apart. If the bread is broken into pieces, you take it in, then you live. When Jesus Christ says, I am the bread of life broken for you, John chapter 6, verse 35, he is saying, I am God, become breakable, killable, vulnerable. I die that you might live. I am broken so you can be whole. This is what's transpiring here is Jesus is being broken down. Why? So we can live. Why? Because he loves us. Why? Because he cares for us and he wants us to be with him, to be a part of him. And when he says, I am the bread of life and I want you to consume me, he's talking not about physically eating a person's body. He's talking about the importance of us consuming Jesus into our lives so that that way we can be made whole. And can we be made whole on this earth alone? Don't we often feel like we have yet to be, there's still something more out there. There's more to come. There's more to be done. Do you ever feel that way? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's when you get like, you talked about that early, getting caught in the rut, you know, being content. Getting content. And you can do all the holidays and all the traditions and, and it could be a pattern a year after year after year after year. And then it's like, well, I've done everything. Yeah. Which brings me to point number three, which is that Jesus's kingdom is not of this world. So his completion is being done, but it will be completely fulfilled when we enter his kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. We have a hope. We have a future. We have something in store for us that is yet to come. And as a result of that, that is yet to come. That is where total fulfillment will happen because Jesus's kingdom is not of this world. And we bear truth of that, that there is more. There is a better place coming. God has more for us in the future. And so instead of us getting content in the way things are in this world today and recognizing that there is something not fully fulfilled inside of me yet, that fulfillment is to come when we enter into his kingdom. And his kingdom is not on this world, of this world, or in this world. He then encourages us to do a few things. When he says, my kingdom is not of this world in John chapter 18, He says that we are to be witnesses of the truth. Those of us who are disciples of Jesus bear witness to him. In other words, we tell people about him. We tell people about his goodness. We tell people about the truth that he's spoken to us and revealed to us, which is found in the Bible. Second, we listen to Jesus. We listen to him in a few different ways. We listen to him by reading the Bible, but we can also listen to him through what? Prayer. Yeah, prayer. And through his helper, the Holy Spirit, who speaks to us on a regular basis. And third, I think this is a very important one for us, is that we are to care for one another and for God's creation. Zechariah chapter 7, 8 through 13. And the word of the Lord came again to 
Zechariah, this is what the Lord Almighty said, Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other, but they refuse to pay attention stubbornly. They turned their backs and covered their ear. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophet. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, said the Lord Almighty. Christ encourages us to care for one another. We are looking at Zechariah the prophet here in this passage that Aisha just read. And it was no less true in Jesus's day than it was in Zechariah's day. And it's no less true today in the 21st century than it was when Jesus was talking. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Don't oppress the widows or the orphans or the aliens that are in this world, the sojourners but instead recognize that this kingdom is not heaven and we have a better place that is yet to be given to us. And if it were not so, he would have told us. John chapter 14, verse two. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Sing it, Steve Green. How did Jesus go to prepare a place for us. Did he just all of a sudden disappear? No, he was put on trial. He was wrongfully accused. He was beaten. He was called to carry his own cross, to drag it through the streets of a city, out to a place that was no longer in the city where he would then be nailed to it and hung on it and he would die. That's how he was going to prepare a place for us. How can we think that everything in this world is supposed to be comfortable and easy when this is the way that Jesus left to prepare a place for us? Let us recognize the importance of what he's calling us to. He's calling us to be his witnesses and to proclaim the truth, which means to be bearers of truth, we have to obey the truth. And by obeying the truth, we treat each other respectfully. We honor the widow and we honor the orphan. And we care for those who are sojourning through this land. We don't allow our hearts, like was spoken in Zechariah, to become hard as flint. But instead, we allow the Holy Spirit to continue to soften us day after day. Jesus loves you and he cares for you. And he was willing to give his life for you. Mallory, will you close us in prayer? Thank you, Jesus, for this day and for every single day. And that everyone will have a great day today. And that we all will praise Jesus every single day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.